Well, we are uh, starting this morning a new sermon series. Uh, you may remember we finished up uh, just before Easter a series on the seven churches of Revelation. Then we took a pause uh, for Easter to celebrate the resurrection. And now we're starting a new sermon series uh, in the book of Ephesians. You know, it's, uh, it's my belief, and I know this uh, might sound like preacherly hyperbole, uh, but I believe that this is probably the most important uh, sermon series that we've preached uh, in our life at Christ Church in town. Uh, we've called our sermon series One. Uh, because I believe that, that at the center of what Ephesians is doing, what Paul is doing in writing to the church at Ephesians, is this question. How can the many live as one? How can those who are estranged and different from each other, often divided from one another, how can they live as one in Christ and under Christ? And so uh, I think it will become clear to us, hopefully, uh, today, why this is such an important uh, question and an important issue in our church and in our world. So if you would, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll be reading uh, from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. I think one of the most fascinating and maybe little known uh, Christians of the last century in America is a Baptist minister named Will Campbell. Will, uh, Will Campbell is a bit of a paradox, a bit of a, a strange guy. He was a Southern Baptist preacher who was educated at Yale Divinity School. And then in the early 1960s, late 1950s, early 1960s, became the chaplain at Ole Miss uh, University. There, uh, he quickly found himself at odds with the administration. This was before uh, James Meredith walked on campus as the first black student of Ole Miss. Uh, and he found himself at odds with the administration, found himself out of a job, and quickly became a white leader in the civil rights movement. 
He was the, the first white member uh, that was a founding member of uh, the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. If you look at the old pictures of Martin Luther King and the other leaders of the civil rights movement, uh, very often Will Campbell is the white guy uh, standing in the picture, lending his support, understanding that for change to come in Mississippi, for change to come in the South, it took not only uh, strong and courageous black voices, uh, but also white voices who are willing uh, to lay down privilege and power and to join with their brothers and sisters. Campbell, uh, for his whole life, he died just a few years ago, uh, was a strange guy. He was a bit of an enigma. He was a preacher, uh, but was known uh, to have a bit of a dirty mouth on him. He was a preacher who ministered just as effectively uh, among uh, black communities and white supremacist communities. Uh, he saw it as his calling to minister uh, to both racists uh, and to those who are victims of racism. One of my favorite stories of Will Campbell uh, has to do with the trial of Sam Bowers. Uh, Sam Bowers was, I've got to get this title right, the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and he was on trial uh, for a firebombing that happened in 1966. He and, a, and two cars full of Klansmen uh, bombed the home of Vernon Dahmer. Vernon was a, uh, a business owner in, in just north of, Hatt north of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, so Bowers and, and some of the fellow Klansmen went. They burned his home. His 10-year-old daughter was injured. And uh, Dahmer himself died in the fire. And uh, at the trial, he was, he was not convicted for 30 years. He had four mistrials, 30 years of trials before he was finally convicted. Uh, witnesses testified against Bowers that they bombed Dahmer's home and that he ordered it uh, because Dahmer had used his shop as a place uh, for black voters to register and to pay the poll tax and to come and vote. And so, uh, so they, they uh, in their hate, uh, bombed his home. And there at the trial... Uh, in August of 1998, he was finally convicted. And at the moment of his conviction, Will Campbell was there. And he was there hugging uh, Dahmer's widow, who had been left alone, a widow for 30 years to raise their children. He was there hugging her and consoling her. But then he was also there hugging Bowers and consoling him for, the, for what lay ahead of him going to prison. And a journalist who noticed this, who noticed this strange pastor, hugging both the victim's family and the perpetrator and his family, asked him how he could do this. How can you, how can you love both of these groups of people? How can you talk to each of them with tenderness and calmness? And Campbell, with his characteristic saltiness, said, because I'm a Christian, dang it. That's, a, that's an edited version. Uh, <laughs> but because I'm a Christian, you see, to, uh, to Campbell, the role of the Christian, the vocation of the Christian, was to stand in the gap, was to stand between estranged people as a bridge of God's reconciling love. That to be a Christian meant uh, to walk into the places of the world's greatest hostility and division and to love both the victim and the victimizer, uh, to love both sides. And in that, uh, we see in Will Campbell a man whose imagination, whose convictions as a Christian, we're shaped by the gospel that we're going to study here in Ephesians. We're shaped by Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here's what's going on in Ephesians, and we start to see it uh, in the chapter that we just read. Paul says in these verses that we just read that what God's doing in the world is bringing all things together and uniting them 
in Christ Jesus. That his ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. Bringing together all kinds of different people. Everything under heaven. Jew, Gentile, man, woman. All kinds of people. Together under Jesus Christ. Uh, They're tearing down what he's going to call in our next chapter. The dividing wall of hostility. The hostility that had grown up because of human sin. Between people and God. Between people and one another. That God was gathering all people and all things together under the grace of Jesus and under his rule and his reign. And as he's doing that, the way that he's doing that in history is by starting by building a reconciled church. A church that's made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Roman and Israelite. All kinds of people built together into one church as a sign to the world that in Christ, God is reconciling the many into one. That in Christ, God is taking the estranged many and bringing them into a reconciled one. That the world would be able to look to the church and to see that happening and to have hope that it really is possible. Now, I said earlier that I think this is the most important sermon series uh, that we've had thus far in the life of our church. And here here are my reasons for saying that. One is I think that that question, how can the many live as one, is the question that our world is asking today. That it's the question. It was popular in the late 90s, early 2000s for sociologists to look around and say that the world is shrinking. Right? With the speed of technology and the internet linking all kinds of people all over the world. With urbanization and immigration, people coming Uh, from all sorts of different parts of the world into some countries and living in cities together, that the world was shrinking, that we, you likely interact with more different kinds of people on a daily basis than your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents might have in their lifetime. That you interact with more people who look different, believe different, uh, have different values uh, than your ancestors might have done in their whole life. That the world is shrinking. And what happens as the world shrinks? I think initially, uh, sociologists looked at this with great hope. Oh, great, the world's shrinking. Now we'll all know everybody and it'll be great. And what happens is the world shrunk, we realize that we don't like each other very much. And we don't have a clue how to share a planet together. We don't have a clue how to reconcile the differences between us. Racial, cultural, religious. We don't know how to live together. And so the world is wondering, how can the many, how can the diverse many live as one? And if, as Paul said in Ephesians, that they should be able to look to the church to figure it out, what happens when the world looks to the church? Do they see a reconciled many living as one? No, they still see, you know, as, as, as Dr. King said, that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour uh, of the American week. It remains so. They'll see Christians who can't even get along with each other uh, over doctrinal issues. We remain sectarian, you know, privileging our own little corners, our own unique beliefs, our own way of phrasing it and doing it over and against our brothers and sisters. So if the world was ever even inclined to look to the church to figure out how the many can live as one, they quickly would go, oh man, we better look elsewhere. So I think it's important for the world, I think it's important for the church, and I I think it's important for our church. I think it's important for this group of people in this room to look at this. If you're newer with us at Christ Church in town, let me tell you a little bit of our story. 
uh, we were founded, we were planted uh, from two different churches, uh, two churches, Christ Church East, uh, which meets out at UNF, uh, and Christ Church Mandarin, which meets uh, on the south side of Jacksonville. A group of about 50 of us um, came together from those two churches and started worshiping together about, about two years ago. Uh, the goal of that was to build a church in the center of the city that would reflect the population of the center of the city. So if you know Jacksonville, and you know a church on the south side and a church on the east side, two predominantly suburban white areas of town, sending a group of people to try to found a church that was going to start to look like the city, right? you know what a, what a difficult, impossible uh, even thing that would be to hope for. And yet, somehow, it's happening. Right? God, by God's grace, he's building a church that's starting to reflect some of the diversity of the city. I have a long way to go. Right? But I had several people who worshipped with us for the first time uh, over Easter. I go, man, I've never been to a church like this. I've never, I've never been a part. As we walked up to communion and just looked around and saw all kinds of different people culturally, racially, socioeconomic, all kind of coming together, coming to the Lord's table as one family. But because it's actually starting to kind of happen, the question is, is heightened for us. How will the many live as one? Will we be a bunch of separate, smaller little churches that meet in one building and worship together and kind of coexist for an hour and a half or so, depending on how long the sermon goes, uh, on a Sunday... Or will we actually become a family? Will we live as one? Will we do our lives together? Will we get to know one another and actually become a reconciled family of God under Jesus? And what Paul is going to show us in Ephesians is that building that, it's going to take a theological vision for what we're doing. Right? It's, it's not worth doing it. Uh, just so that we can feel cool and progressive, um, to feel like we're, we're you know, doing the right thing for postmodern people. No, we're not doing it for that reason. According to Paul, in building a church uh, that is a reconciled many living as one, you're living in, in, with the grain of what Jesus is doing in the universe. That one day Jesus will gather the many under one head. One day you will worship with people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in seeking it in this world, we actually participate in the kingdom of God. We actually pursue the kingdom of God. And so it's going to take theological resources uh, more than just practical and, and pragmatic tips. And that's what we see Paul doing in the first chapters of Ephesians. This is some of the deepest theology uh, anywhere in the New Testament. Some of the highest uh, Christology, descri description of who Jesus is and what he's done. This is some exalted language. This is a mountain peak in the New Testament where you kind of look over and see all that God is doing in Jesus. But Paul isn't doing it for abstract theological reasons. He's not doing it to fuel our desire for philosophical speculation about predestination. That's not what this is about. This is about... Paul leveraging his, his theology, his vision of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world in order to say that if you're going to have any hope of living as a reconciled one, you need to come to understand that you share a common identity 
shaped by a common story and anticipating a common hope, that you, that you share more in common than you think. First is a common identity. You know, uh, in this 14-verse stretch, uh, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in Jesus, some, some version of the synonyms of in Christ, 15 times. 15 times in 14 verses. He talks about what we have in Christ. This is a, it's, it's one of the great sentences in Paul, and actually, uh, verses 3 through 14 in Greek are one sentence. This is a sentence that you would, uh, if you submitted this sentence in your eighth grade English class, it would have come back with uh, red ink all over it, right? This is one extended run-on sentence where Paul essentially kind of loses control of his praise to God, blessed be God, praise to God, because of all that we have in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What he's saying is that every blessing that you could ever want, that you could ever need, that you could ever uh, long for in your life is only found in Christ. Your identity as a human being, what matters most about you, your greatest resources, are what you have in Christ, if you're in Christ. That in Christ is everything. For a Christian, when we think about our identity, when we think about who we are, it's okay to look at our lives and say that we're blessed by certain of the endowments, by certain of the things that God's given us. We're blessed, each of us, to be a part of a culture, right? Whether you're black or white, Latino or Asian, you're, you're a part of a culture that went before you. You have ancestors. You have ways of doing things, ways that you were raised. There's parts of your culture that are good, but they don't define you. Uh, there's parts of being an American that are great, Right? America is a great country to live in. But being an American doesn't define you. Now, there's parts of being a man or a woman that are great. But being a man, being a woman doesn't define you. Right? That all of the different things, all of the different markers that we use to build our identity are relativized by what we have in Christ. They're not done away with. Jesus doesn't say, stop being an American. He doesn't say give up your race. It's not about, you know, giving up your culture. It's about realizing that all of our cultures are relativized next to Jesus. That as, as blessed as we may be by those things, that it, it pales in comparison to the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. You know, most of the ways that we carve out identities for ourselves are defined in opposition to other people of other, of other identities. Right? We define our culture over and against others, ways that we think we're better. We define our uh, class or our place in society over and against others and think that we're better. We define our political uh, beliefs in a way over and against others to think that we're better. And what he's saying is that all of those things, all of those things, begin to become dim and less important in the light of the incredible blessings that you have in Christ Jesus. And so if this is true, if it's true that your deepest blessings aren't your cultural blessings, but the blessings that you have in Christ, and your identity is more shaped by Him than it is by your culture, then this means that you have, I have more in common with a Christian suffering for his faith in poverty in the South Sudan than I might have in common with my own neighbor 
if they're not in Christ and don't have the same values and aren't, aren't, don't, don't share those blessings in Christ. Right? It means that if you live on the southeastern part of town or you live on the north side, that you have more in common in Christ than you might with your own neighbors, your own coworkers. That what we have in Christ, what we have in Christ is what defines us more than anything else about us. And that knits us together and it makes us as one. That's why we say we are one church and we pray for the church in the Middle East. We're not praying for strangers. We're praying for family. Right? We're praying for family. As Paul's going to go on to say in Ephesians when he describes the church, we're marked by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one church around the world. So we have a common identity and we have a common story. When Paul goes... Uh, you know, it might strike you as strange if what I've said about Ephesians is true, that what Paul's trying to do is to lay a, a groundwork for unity in the church. It might seem strange to you that he then goes on to start talking about election and predestination, right? When I think of how to forge unity, I don't think, hey, let's talk about predestination. That, 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 in my experience, maybe you're different, that's not been a unifying conversation among Christians. And yet, when Paul trying to build one church, one family, Jew and Gentile together. When he starts that conversation, he says, because you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, predestined in Christ. He starts talking about election to bring Jews and Gentiles together. Why? Well, again, we've said this isn't, this isn't philosophical speculation. This isn't Paul uh, sitting back and pondering the mysteries of human free will, although it has implications for that. Here's what Paul's doing uh, when, he's, when he takes this group of Jews and Gentiles and, say, and, and uses election and predestination as a way of knitting them together. What he's doing is saying this. He's saying, you people have the same story. That, you know, cultures tell stories about themselves, how we got here, who it's most important to us, where we pick up our values and our ways of doing things. And what Paul is saying is that you all share the same story. And that story begins before the foundation of the world when you are set out and marked out by Jesus' love to be his people. He starts using the language that Israel knew and loved about itself. When you read the language about election, uh, that's language that is all through the Old Testament about Israel's story, right? God chose Abraham and his family. God then chose Moses to liberate his people. God chose David to be his king under his covenant. That throughout uh, the pages of the Old Testament, we see God electing, God choosing the few, the one family, one, la one leader, one man, in order to bless the many. So we see God's electing grace throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And so when they read this story, when they read what Paul's saying and they read the language about election, Israel would have recognized, oh, he's talking about us. He's talking about our, our status as God's chosen people in, uh, in, you know, in the covenant. But he's talking about Israel's story. When he uses the language of adoption, that also is Israel's language. Right? Remember Matthew borrowing this language about Jesus. Out of Israel, I've, out of Egypt, I've called my son is the language that God used to describe his calling of the people of Israel out of, out of slavery in Egypt. Israel were God's children. Israel were God's chosen. 
And so what Paul's doing here to this now Jew and Gentile congregation is saying, no, no, no. It's not just Israel that's my chosen. It's now all of you as a family, Jew and Gentile together, chosen in Christ. It's my love, my grace that marks you out, not divides you as the chosen and the unchosen, the loved and the unloved. I love this sentence, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved. That's talking about Jesus. Right? He's saying that Jesus is the beloved of God. Right? There has never been a stronger love than between the, the Trinity, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he's saying that in the beloved, in Christ, you are the beloved. When you're in Christ, you're as loved by the Father as the second person of the Trinity, as his only begotten Son. You become marked out by his incredible, unshakable, unlosable love. It becomes yours. And so election uh, is a means to unity. You know, election, this, this doctrine that, that, we're, that if we're in Christ, we're only there because he came for us, because he set his love on us independently of us turning our, our love to him. If that's true, it actually has an incredible power, not only to unify Christians, uh, but actually to tear down the barriers that separate Christians and non-Christians. But have you ever thought, why, if you're, if you're a believer, why are you a believer and your neighbor isn't, and your friend isn't, your family member isn't? Right? Have you ever thought of why, why one group of people and not the other? And how you start to tell that story to yourself, well, I, you know, maybe I'm smarter than everybody else. Right? Maybe I, I saw the evidence, I read the books, I made an intelligent decision that Jesus is, is the only way to God. So maybe I'm a Christian because I'm smarter uh, than my non-Christian neighbor. Well, no, y'all are, y'all are humble enough to go, no, no, that's not it. That's not it. Maybe you're a Christian because you're so humble, right? Because you, unlike your arrogant neighbors, were, were willing and able to look at your own life and your own sin and go, no, I need a Savior. And so you're in Christ because you're so humble. No. Right? Every, what election means is that you are only in Christ if you're in Christ by something that the world would call dumb luck. Right, that you're in Christ only because he loved you. Only because when you were doing your very best, running 100 miles an hour away from him, he was running after you in Christ. Right, I think election is only, you can only see it in retrospect. Right, it looks weird to look out and try to figure out, you know, who's, who's in, who's out. It's not meant to work that way. It's meant to make sense of your story looking back, to go, oh man, I know enough about myself that when I, when I became a believer, when I, when I finally turned away from my sin and looked up at the cross, it had nothing to do with me. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about my goodness. It wasn't about my courage. It wasn't about my faith, my smarts, my humility. Uh, it was only about His grace. It was only about that. And so what election means is that our Christian faith is about grace all the way to the very bottom, all the way to the foundation of the faith. No matter how many questions you ask about why you're in Christ, well, I'm in Christ because I believe. Well, why'd you believe? Well, because somebody told me the truth of the gospel, and I, well, why'd they come tell you? Well, because then I heard it, and I believed, and I was humble enough. No, it just says that you ask all of those questions, and if you push it all the way down to the basic why, 
that it's grace. That it's grace. And that's our story. That's the story that unifies us. It's the story that strips away all of our pride, even our pride in being a Christian. And so they share a, uh, a common identity, they share a common story, and then they long for a common hope. Uh, I love this. Paul says uh, <clears throat> here in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, right? That everything in creation is moving towards a day where people of every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship Jesus, where everything broken will be made straight, where everything divided will be brought together under Christ. That's where the universe is headed, right? And it's not just happening by accident, right? There's the, uh, the great Martin Luther King quote that folks love to quote, that I believe that the moral arc of the universe arcs towards justice, right? It's a great quote, but it only makes sense, right? It doesn't just happen that way. Right? Dr. King was a Christian pastor. What he means is, not to put words in his mouth, but he knew that the, war, the moral arc of the universe arcs that way because Jesus took it and grabbed it and bent it that way. Right? That Jesus is working history to that. Jesus is gathering all things together under his reign. That's why the universe is going that direction. Verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Going down to the end in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Here's what he's saying, is that in Christ you have the Holy Spirit as a foretaste as a down payment on what you will eventually have in completion, right? So in that day, when everything is brought together under the headship of Jesus, what you will have fully and deeply without any barrier is full communion with God, full access to the Father, what you now know only by faith, then you'll know by sight. But in the meantime, as a down payment on it, as a foretaste of it, we have the Holy Spirit as God's presence within us and among us. The Holy Spirit makes us a people of the future living in the present. It's, a, it's a, a way that the future gets lived out in the Christian present. It's our mark of where we're headed, of what's ultimately true, of all things gathered together in God and with God. So let me ask this question. You can think about it honestly in your heart. I won't make you answer it. When you think about that, that news, that the whole arc of creation, the whole arc of history is going towards reconciliation, is going towards the many living as one, is going towards every barrier of hostility broken down, and you living for the rest of eternity in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual fellowship. Gut reaction in your heart, is that good news or bad news? Because if, if we're honest, for some of us, it's like, oh, you're going to have to... Am I going to have to learn another language when I get to heaven? Right? In a, in, a, in a world where we talk often of building walls to keep ourselves separate, to hear that, that the word wall is going to be forever abolished from the human vocabulary in eternity, does that feel like good news or bad news? When you think about uh, 
all kinds of people gathered under Christ, all cultures, all languages, people that you think measure up and are good, people that you don't, Uh, people that you think um, deserve to be there and people that if it were up to you wouldn't. When you think of that, does that feel like good news or does it feel like bad news? Because that vision that you have of the future affects your present in really, really profound ways. Our vision of the future, our vision of where we're headed affects the way that we love people, it affects the way that we build friendships, it affects the way that we manage our time. Right? Paul isn't laying out a future vision so that he can start an argument about the end times with people. No, he's, he's laying out the future vision to say, live your life with the grain of the universe. If that's where it's headed, it matters for the way that you live your relationships and the way that you handle church here and now. One of my favorite stories... And then I'll close with this. One of my favorite uh, pieces of fiction in the world is a short story by Flannery O'Connor called Revelation. In this story, uh, Flannery O'Connor, the great uh, Southern writer, tells the story of a woman named Miss Turpin and her husband Claude. Uh, Now, Miss Turpin, uh, she was a very, very self-satisfied woman. She was a woman who, though she wasn't rich, uh, was kind of middle-class, hardworking, And she looked down on everybody that she didn't think worked hard as she did, raised kids as well as she did, was as well behaved as she was. In her own mind, she was the consummate southern lady and was constantly evaluating everybody else around her according to that that measuring stick. Now, it becomes clear in the short story that she's terribly racist. So she clearly is looking down uh, on people of other races. But she's also looking down on the people that she calls poor white trash. Uh, the white folks that she thought were beneath her as well. So she's an equal opportunity degrader of people. She was confident uh, that in the end, she would be vindicated. People who make the right decisions and work hard and act right, people who raise well-behaved children and observe the right manners. And this story is about uh, her having a revelation. Uh, uh, read the story. It's, it's fantastic. Um, it's hilarious. But the end, it closes uh, with her having a vision. And here's the vision that Miss Turpin has. A visionary light settled in her eyes, and she saw the streak as, as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black Negroes in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once, as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. When we catch Paul's vision, the vision of Ephesians, of all sorts of people, every walk of life, coming together under the headship of Jesus, it has profound implications for the way that we pursue fellowship in this church, for the ways that you manage your relationships and your time and the kinds of people you build relationships with, for the ways that you think about your own cultural heritage and your own identity. 
And so let's, let's pray uh, that in our time in Ephesians, in our time in this incredible book, that Paul would use it, or that God would use uh, Paul's words here to soften us, to show us areas of unseen prejudice in our own hearts, to show us the barriers that he would tear down in our church, in our city, in our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we live in a world that is marred by division. We live lives uh, that are marked by their insularity, uh, by the ways that many times the people that we know and enjoy and spend time with look, talk, act, and, and value the same things we do. Lord, I pray that in this world that is trying uh, in vain to figure out how to share a world together, in spite of our differences, as we live in a world that's marked by violence and oppression and racism and prejudice, that you would help your church, the church around the world, to be a sign and a foretaste of a community where every wall is torn down. And Lord, that you would help this church in this time, in this place, in this city to figure this stuff out. Lord, we admit that we are in uh, over our heads in this. Lord, we are not particularly smart, we're not particularly culturally sensitive, we're not particularly uh, gentle with each other or wise. Uh, Lord, we're prone to offend each other. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, that you would help us by your grace, that you would help to build uh, something beautiful here, a mosaic uh, that reflects uh, the reconciled beauty of a diverse creation coming together under the headship of Jesus. Uh, Lord, if that happens, it'll be a miracle of your grace. And so uh, we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your power. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would do this and that you would lead us in this way uh, for your own glory and for the renown of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.